I think he has a long way to go in terms of still being a true leader and handling yourself like a, like a real leader does. On this episode of Against the Grain, we're talking about potential dark horse playoff teams. Believe it or not, that means it's time to have our friend, a Jets reporter on. Let's go. We are cutting against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Now your host for Against the Grain. Against the grain. Here's Andrew Perloff. Welcome to Against the Grain. I'm Andrew Perloff, your host. Here with Mario Miranda, who produces the podcast and weighs in. And Mario is feeling himself this week. Oh, yeah. I called it last week. Oh, my gosh. All right, let's just jump right into this. At the end of last week's podcast, I said something like, next week we're going to talk about winning teams. Let's, and... just, let's just listen to it. Oh, God. Right, play it. I Let's focus on some winning teams next week. What okay. do you think? Yeah, yeah. The All Jets. Right. We got the losers out. What? Jets. They're coming back. So... When you say the Jets are a winning team, yes, they beat the Giants. Yes, they beat the Redskins. Yes, they beat Oakland at 1 p.m. Eastern. Are they going to continue to win? Yeah. I mean, look at their next two games. The Bengals, the Dolphins, who they did lose to, but I, this is a new Jets Dolphins, team. Dolphins in New York, too, or in New Jersey. This is a completely different Jets team than that other game. Okay, and then at the Ravens, then that all falls And they're going to win that one, too. Okay. It's interesting. The Jets, to me, and several other teams, it's all coming down to one thing for the rest of the year. What is it? Can you guess? Hanging? Schedule. Oh. Everyone underestimates how important strength of schedule is in the NFL. I used to do a, a thing for SI. Every year they did the NFL preview, and I did a thing where I did a little capsule paragraph on strength of schedule. I said, do not disregard who they play, where they play, and when they play. That determines a playoff winner almost as much as any other factor. The NFL schedule is set up for parity. So the last place teams get an easier schedule, and you've seen it play out this year. Now, for example, the Buffalo Bills are 8-3. and three. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to be a playoff team. Yep. They have some interesting pieces. They've played teams that are 41-80 and 80 on the year. That is by a large percentage the easiest schedule. Behind them is the Minnesota Vikings, who play teams that are 50-71. The Patriots, 52-68. and 68. Then the Niners at 51 and 67, and the Titans at 53 and 68. So you could say all of those teams have benefited greatly from weak schedules, including the Patriots. You're looking at me quizzically. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, isn't that just the nature of, you know, is it the four year cycle? The Patriots are getting the, uh, you know, the NFC East, which is not good outside of uh, Dallas. Yes. No, that's random luck. You're, mm-hmm. you're totally right. Uh, and by the way, the Eagles and Dallas are pretty close, but I'm not even going to get into that. Eagles, yeah. The toughest strength the schedule played this year, the Cincinnati Bengals, the Cleveland Browns, which is interesting. We'll get back to them. The Atlanta Falcons, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and the Miami Dolphins. So based on that, those teams are probably better than their record, considering mm-hmm. the Bengals have not won a game. <laughs> <laughs> they came close. Uh, they did, <laughs> kind of. That was just a sad display. So basically, in my opinion, like the, all those teams are colored by who they played. Now, let's look at what's next. The toughest remaining schedules in the NFL are number one, the San Francisco 49ers at 35 and 18. That is significant because they have a showdown with the Seahawks looming at the end of the, end of the season. Mm-hmm. So the Niners, that's a team I feel like needs to get home field. They need to be the, a bye. So if they lose that home field in the bye to the Seahawks, they have no chance in my opinion. But if they're going through San Francisco... I think they're 
very potentially a Super Bowl team. Do you think that San Francisco, that home the home field advantage is really a factor there? I don't see that fan base is like, or just No, I know you're I right, know. but do you see them going into Lambeau and winning in a cold game? I mean, after yesterday, they yeah, made that, Aaron Rodgers look. But they, you're right, you're right. The pa- oh. But the Packers do not show up on the road games like that. Okay. That game, not, mm-hmm. the Packers never show up. You're right, that's a good point. But I feel like, and you know how Minnesota's got that strong home field advantage. They don't want to go there. It's yeah. not. It's not because their home field is so great. I just feel like going to these other places, Seattle, is not ideal. Fair enough. Uh, next is the Titans, who are their played opponents. I'm sorry, they play opponents who are 35 and 20 coming up. That's kind of a bummer. Because they're six and five. The Bills have a much tougher schedule. They see the Patriots, so you'd think that they're going to really be tested. We'll see if they survive. The Rams, 39-24 and two for their uh, opponents coming up. That is tough because they need to win pretty much every game. We're taping this on Monday afternoon. They have the Ravens coming up tonight. They do not cannot afford any losses. That's tough. And lastly, the Cardinals. Now, the easiest remaining strength of schedules. Try and guess off the top of your head. Number one. The Patriots? No, 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 no the, they the, were the, the toughest. Uh, the Jets. Jets have to be in there. The Jets are not. Because they actually, I think they have New England on their schedule. Oh no, they have the Ravens on their schedule. So, oh. uh, and New England, I believe. So they're they're in a little bit of trouble there. But the easiest remaining strength of schedule: Philadelphia Eagles. Their upcoming opponents are fourteen and forty-one. Now, if they can just force a Week sixteen meaningful game against Dallas in Philly, who knows? They'll get Lane Johnson back. They'll get Alshon Jeffrey back. They'll get Jordan Howard back. They'll get Nelson Aguilar back. I can go on and on. They'll get a lot of guys back. If they can beat the teams that they should upcoming on their schedule, I think they're still in it because of easiest strength of schedule. Do you have confidence in them? Here, no. November 25th, do yes. you have confidence in No, I don't have confidence. No, they've played poorly, but I don't think it's over. I tweeted this last night, and I do not think it's over. I, I think there's a very good chance that they, they play Dallas for the division. I watched that game yesterday, and hey, Carson Wentz just looks lost. I mean, he's, did get, you see he's when, getting no time back there. Did you see when he overthrew Miles Sanders on the screen yeah, pass? Yeah, they said it was win. I read somewhere that was It was win. 40 feet I, over his head. Greg Ward is starring at wide receiver. Greg, well, Greg Ward is a guy I know. He should have been He should have been on that squad all along. He's he, good. He was, a, he was a quarterback at Houston, he, yeah, right? I know. He should have I'm a big Greg Ward fan. Also, he was in the Alliance. I he think. was in the AAF. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a couple months ago. He was killing it in the Alliance. <laughs> and he was the best player on that team. Mm-hmm. I mean, the players they put out there, Jordan Matthews, Greg Ward, uh, Arthago Whiteside, Arthago Whiteside, like this, these are guys who could not separate. Ever since Deshaun Jackson went out, it's been a disaster. Mm-hmm. But I mean, fourteen and forty-one for their upcoming schedule, so that is winnable. You know, the defense has been amazing. That O line, if it comes together, is still good. They go to Miami. They're seven and a half point favorites. I think they're going to win that game. So then you get to six and six. Would you put them in this category of dark horse? Yes, this is what I'm talking Cliff. about. They're a dark horse. Uh, then they host the Giants. They're going to be 10-point favorites on that if the Giants keep trending mm-hmm. the way they are. Then they go to the Redskins. They they can't lose to the Redskins. If the playoffs are on the line, they're going to be so much more into it than the Redskins. Then So that's three wins. That would bring them to eight and six. Then looming the Cowboys, then it could happen, right? Yeah. I mean, this is not crazy. They're favored by a touchdown in all these games, and they end with the Giants. So I, I think the rule them out would be crazy. The next team on the easiest remaining strength of schedule, Cleveland Browns. Their uh, next opponents are 17, 36, and 1. So we talked about this earlier in the year. The Browns just need to survive 
the beginning part of the year. They didn't really survive, Mm-mm. but it's it's on there. There is a good chance you don't need that gaudy a record in the AFC. They go to the Steelers, who really looked bad for most of the game against Cincinnati. Hodges saved their butt. Then they, let's see, then they host the Bengals, who are just the worst. Then they go to the Cardinals, a very winnable game, host the Ravens, who they've already beaten, and they'll go to the Bengals. So that schedule is very easy. They look good yesterday, too. They look really good. I mean, we know they're talented. mm -hmm. So, okay. Then we get the Packers have an easy schedule coming up, which they're going to need if they keep playing like that. Mm. The Dolphins have an easy schedule, and the Giants have an easy schedule. So as far as playoff contenders, it's just the Eagles, Browns, and Packers. Mm -hmm. So I think you got to look at the Eagles and Browns as real dark horse playoff contenders. I know what your eyes have seen this season, but just put that aside. I'm telling you, and I could be totally wrong, so cut this if I am. The Eagles are not out of it just based on schedule. And the Browns are actually in a good spot as long as they don't trip up to Duck Hodges and those those feisty Steelers. I'm just thinking about if they do, both of these teams do get to like, you know, right at the ledge there where they can make it and they just lose that final game. Like if the Eagles lose to the Cowboys week 16 with the playoffs on the line, oh. that fan base is going to, I can't even put into words what's going to happen there. Yeah, that's why the NFL is great. There's so much drama. But I want to talk about the dark horse of all dark horse teams, a team that you would think was in contention for the top spot in the draft at one point. But now they're in a little bit of a run. The New York Jets find themselves at 4-7 and seven with a very soft schedule coming up. So maybe this could happen. When it comes to Jets, there's only one person to talk to. New York Daily News is Manish Mehta, who's a friend of the DP show, a friend of mine. He's a fellow Sixers fan. Great dude. He's going to break it down for us what kind of chance they have to make the postseason. Are you excited, Mario? Are you ready to be pro-Jets? I am stoked. All right, let's go. Here is Manish Mehta. All right, Manish, we were talking about on the Dan Patrick Show, 4-7 and with the following schedule. At Bengals, host the Dolphins, at Ravens, host the Steelers, then end up in Buffalo. Is the playoff dream alive in New Jersey right now with the Jets? Well, I think players are hopeful that if they run the table that they can sneak in. I just think that if you look at a little closer at who they've actually beaten and who they've lost to, uh, their record in the AFC is absolutely terrible. So they're not going to win very many, if any, tiebreakers. Three of their four wins are against NFC East teams, and as you know, the NFC East isn't particularly good this year, but they only have that one win against Oakland uh, in, in, the, in the conference. So they'll lose tiebreakers to the teams that are in the mix, like Cleveland. Uh, mm. They still have the Steelers, as you said. But I think when it's all said that if they ran the table, which I don't believe they'll do because I think they're in for a rude awakening on Thursday night in a few weeks in Baltimore. But uh, for argument's sake, even if they did finish at 9-7, and seven, I don't think that they would win the tiebreakers over anybody. Okay, hypothetical. If Sam Darnold was healthy, didn't have mono early in the season, uh, and those were tough games. I mean, that wasn't easy wins to go to New England and Philly. But do you think this might have played out differently? I think maybe one more win. Uh, when I looked at the schedule before the season started, and obviously before Darnold got hurt, uh, or sick, I should say, uh, I thought that perhaps they could beat Cleveland in Week 2. Uh, that was a primetime game. They ended up losing by 20. Uh, I did not think that they would beat the, the New England on the road or Philly on the road with Sam Darnold. So uh, depending on how things shake out, if they finish 7-9, and 8-8, eight and eight, uh, maybe that pushes them to 9-7. and seven. 
but I ultimately think that they were going to be in the playoff conversation in December, but fall just short uh, with a healthy Sam Darnold. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess they can rally to make it respectable in terms of the record, but I don't think they were a playoff team, uh, even if Darnold did not get sick. So the guy who produces this podcast, Mario, is a Jets fan, and he's been trying to convince me, because of the Giants and the Redskins wins, that this is the real deal. But you kind of sound like that was just a function of them being bad. And even the Oakland win with Oakland's record, I know they were West Coast coming East. That didn't change your opinion of really who they were as a team? Well, I think what we've seen over the past few weeks, there's a clear line of demarcation uh, between the complete dreck of the NFL. And when I say the dreck, I'm talking about the Mount Rushmore of horrible teams. And I would put <laughs> the Giants, the Redskins, the Bengals, and the Dolphins in that group of four. I think uh, you know that loss in Miami notwithstanding, you know they're going to get another opportunity when Miami comes to town in a couple weeks. I think they'll win that game. I think what we're going to see is that the Jets are clearly – uh, a step above those teams, and yeah, you know, technically the Raiders were six and four. But if you remember, entering the season, the Raiders were supposed to be the laughing stock of the NFL, and they've really got a lot of good contributions out of a bunch of rookies. So I think they've exceeded their expectations, but I don't think they're very good, to be honest with you. I, I think they're a middling team, and that's kind of how uh, I believe the record will bear out. Uh, I, I think that the Jets are going to be picking in the top six or seven of the 2020 draft, which tells you that. They're in that bottom six or seven of the NFL. I don't think they're you know absolutely terrible when Sam Darnold is right, but I don't think that uh, you know they're in that caliber where you can say, hey, they're mm-hmm. a legitimate playoff team and a potential Super Bowl contender. That seems a little high because the Bengals seem to be tanking and the Dolphins, you know, and who knows what Steelers team is coming into town right. on the twenty second. <laughs> when you think about it, are they actually potentially hurting their draft position, but I don't know. You know, since they don't need a quarterback, does that really matter? I mean, draft position for the Bengals is huge, but there's no obviously there's would be no talk of tanking here in the Jets. The draft position is what it is, right? Yeah, look, they they would love to get Chase Young, but I think that ship is sailed. Yeah, they're not going to be in the bottom two or three to to get him. The Georgia offensive tackle is probably a player that they need the most. Right, and uh, you know, I haven't delved deep enough into the draft to know if he's going to be a top five player or a top ten player but he would potentially be in striking distance for them. And there's always the wild card that Joe Douglas is going to try to get as much draft capital as possible and slide down uh, as much as he can to, to do that because you know, the Jets don't believe, even though things are going really well, well right now, they don't believe that they're necessarily mm. close. I, I, don't, I don't agree with them. I think that they are close to being a playoff team, but I think that the people who are making the decisions believe that you know, they need to get as much draft capital as possible to try to you know, build a new foundation, for lack of a better word. Is that because of the way Joe Douglas came in at the end of the offseason and didn't really... Is that because he wants to build it in his way and he hasn't gotten a chance yet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I said this uh, from the moment he got here. The Jets would not have signed Le'Veon Bell or C.J. Mosley if Joe Douglas was hired after the season. If he was running the 2019 draft and the free agency period, they would not have spent uh, $27, $28 million guaranteed on a running back, and they would not have given an inside yeah. linebacker for as good as C.J. Mosley is, $17 million a year. Uh, that I know for sure. Uh, so that changes the, the that dynamic right off the jump because those were the two high-profile free agent signings that, the, that Mike McCagnan made, uh, and they would not have been on this team if Douglas was in charge. And, you know, Douglas is belief is you're not going to be anything unless you have a formidable 
front uh, on the offensive line and the defensive line. Now, the defensive line is very stout against the run. You know, they're the best in the league against the run. Uh, They need uh, an edge presence to, you know, generate some kind of pass rush. So that'll be a focal point for Douglas. But I think more so than even that is really fortifying the offensive line and protecting Sam Darnold and opening holes for whoever's going to be running, uh, you know, in that backfield next year because it won't necessarily be Le'Veon Bell. I think the Jets, in fact, I know the Jets would love to trade Le'Veon Bell if it makes sense uh, in terms of perhaps absorbing some of the money that he's owed and uh, you know, kind of getting out of that contract. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes ahead with Joe Douglas. And uh, as you said, right off the jump here, yeah. uh, this is not his team. Uh, this is not how he would have built the team. It doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong because a lot of the players that we're praising right now are players that Mike McCagnan drafted and or signed. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of, uh, reshaping and rebuilding this team into what Joe Douglas thinks can be a sustainable winner, and it'll all start uh, in free agency in 2020. You know, nationally, th- there's a weird view of Adam Gase and Joe Douglas. There was sort of the perception that Gase kind of, uh, Joe Douglas would not have gone there if it wasn't for Gase, which means that Gase's job security should be pretty good with the Jets. Do you think do you think Gase, uh, Douglas would have hired Gase if he had had a blank slate and been hired before Gase? I know they're no. friends, but yeah, like, what direction no. do you think he would have gone? To that, Andrew, is no. Uh, That's what I thought. I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because the perception after McCagnan was fired was that the new GM would essentially be Adam Gase's lackey and, and Gase would be running the show. And uh, and, I, and look, just to dig a little bit deeper here, I have to give Jimmy Sexton a lot of credit. He represents Adam Gase. He represents Joe Douglas. He also happens to represent Sam Darnold. So he represents all the, the key components and key figures uh, with the, you know, the current state of the Jets. Uh, I have to give Sexton a lot of credit because the initial offer that the Jets made for Joe Douglas uh, was in line with what, in terms of time frame, in, with what Adam Gase has signed up for. And in terms of money, it, it was probably a fair offer for a first-time GM. But uh, there was such a strong sentiment among the fan base and even among uh, – you know, people who know Gase, Gase wanted Joe Douglas because of their past, you know, interaction in Chicago for one year. I think their, their you know, quote-unquote friendship was a little bit overblown. Uh, clearly they're friendly and they have a good relationship, but I don't think, you know, these are like lifetime buddies and uh, or anything, you know, to that degree. But, you know, the notion uh, was that, well, Adam Gase essentially, uh, you know, I don't... I hate using the word backstabbed because I, I use that in public. I actually framed a question to Adam Gase asking him if he felt like he backstabbed Mike McCagnan. But the bottom line is that he played a role in McCagnan's ouster. And so at that point, Christopher Johnson, who's the acting owner, was all in with Adam Gase. So you really do have to bring in the guy that uh, Gase wants. And that was Joe Douglas. However, Jimmy Sexton leveraged all of that into getting uh, Joe Douglas not only more money per year, somewhere in the three three and a quarter to three and a half million a year, which puts him in the top five of general managers, even though he's never been a general manager before, which is great <laughs> money. And he also got additional years on uh, Joe Douglas's contract. So now Joe Douglas is under contract for six years, longer than Adam Gase is under contract. So somehow in a span of about a week, week and a half, uh, <laughs> Joe Douglas went from being subordinate to the head coach to really having the leverage uh, over the head coach mm. because of the money that's owed to him and the amount of years that he is now tied uh, 
to with the organization. So, uh, do I think that Joe Douglas wants to fire Adam Gase tomorrow? No, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that for certain. I, I don't know. I think that he wants to make it work with Adam Gase because, uh, much like you know, much like me, I, I know that uh, the Jets believe that Adam Gase has good ideas and he could be good for Sam Darnold. The big question uh, for everybody, frankly, if, if you know, you know, if you if you put uh, them. Uh, hooked up to a, a lie detector test is you know, what kind of leader is Adam Gase? I mean, can he lead a team? Mm. How does he handle himself behind the scenes? And I can tell you, Andrew, with great assurance, over the te- past ten months, eleven months, I found out a lot of things about how Adam Gase conducts his business uh, that I don't agree with. That I don't think is really uh, uh, what a good leader does. And that's not to say that he can't change. But to this point, I haven't seen any kind of like tangible change. That doesn't change the the idea that he's got a good creative offensive mind, and I thought that was really the hook for him coming and working with Darnold and getting the head coaching job. But I think he has a long way to go in terms of still being a true leader and handling yourself like a like a real leader does. Did you happen to see uh, I my most popular tweet of the year was a picture of Adam Gase uh, ripping smelling salts before a preseason <laughs> game? I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, that was. You know, that was an interesting moment. Uh, but I, I, guess, I don't know if any other coaches do that. I, certainly I grabbed a lot of headlines. I think a lot of them do. I think, actually, I heard from uh, some of the former players close to the DP show that that's not that uncommon. It's not, not that big a deal. It certainly didn't look great. Uh, you know, you think of Joe Douglas, who he would hire, you'd think a former Eagle. I know he was a Raven scout for a long time. But there, I'm not sure there's anybody like any obvious hire for the Jets in the Joe Douglas universe. Like Jim Schwartz is probably not hireable right now because he's, well, maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know if you saw Jeff McClain's feature on Jim Schwartz as being an oddball, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know who the Joe Douglas ideal coach is. Have you gotten any sense of like who he is? Like you said, he hasn't been a GM yet. We're not exactly sure what he's going to do. Well, the good news, Andrew, is that he's not going to have to make that decision for at least uh, a year because Adam Gase isn't going to get fired. And Christopher Johnson came out and gave him a public vote of confidence. Uh, I know a public vote of confidence gets yeah. him the kiss of death a lot of times. But, oh, this but one's I, real. Okay. Yeah, but it is, it, it's, it's legitimate. And, of course, this is barring anything off the field. If something crazy happens off the field, then all bets are off, and then perhaps there's a change. But let's just say, you know, for, for argument's sake, that Adam Gase stays on the straight and narrow path off the field and uh, – and he does come back. So I don't think this is a decision that the GM is going to have to make, uh, at least for another you know, 13 months. Uh, but in terms of who would be his ideal candidate, it would be someone who could get the best out of the quarterback because everything about this franchise right now centers on Sam Darnold, and for good reason. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of obvious uh, holes that need to be plugged and improvements that need to be made. But uh, just watching these past few weeks, you can see the promise that this guy has. I've been a, a Sam Darnold believer back when he was uh, at USC. Uh, I see the skill set. I see the mind. I see the mindset now, uh, up close and personal. And uh, you know, he's still what 22 years old, I think. So uh, this is a guy who's got so much room for growth. And I think that you know I've always been of the belief that he's going to be a very good player, no matter who the head coach is. I think he's going to be successful with or with Adam Gase. With or without Adam Gase, to me, it's like. Is he going to be a Philip Rivers, uh, Matt Ryan type of quarterback, uh, Tony Romo type of quarterback, or is there a possibility that uh, he could max out an Aaron Rodgers like player? And uh, you know that that's TBD. We don't know, but I do think with the proper coaching and the proper supporting cast in terms of personnel, I think the latter is certainly possible. 
Wow. I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think Darnold can be very good. All right. Uh, last question. I want to ask you about your role as a reporter. We talk on the DP show a lot. We Every Monday morning, we come in and we kind of make fun of some of the questions that coaches <laughs> I know ask. Where this is going. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not. Actually, no, I don't have a specific one that, that with you. But usually we make fun of the people trying to get something out of Belichick. But I, I want to ask, because I've seen you go... You you asked the tough questions after a loss. Do you remember like the first time when you were a, a cub reporter where you had to ask something really hard and, and were you nervous about it or are you a natural at uh covering a losing team? So so I got a story to tell you. I, I got a friend of mine who lives in Baltimore. He sends me a text uh, a few weeks back and he said, "Hey, they were mentioning you on the on the Dan Patrick show." And I said, oh, yeah? Well, what, you know, what was it about? And they said it was about the question you asked uh, Adam Gase after the Miami loss about whether the loss validated Stephen Ross's decision to fire him. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know if it was you or somebody else uh, referring to me as a professional irritant. And, uh, <laughs> and then Dan said, is that on his business card or something to that effect? That's how it was relayed to me, which got a, you know, got a laugh out of me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, look, to answer your question, uh, it's not personal, you know, and I know that sometimes, uh, you know, it gets a little dicey with reporters. Uh, they they want to tread lightly. They want to use euphemisms. Uh, but ever since I started covering professional sports, it's a little bit different. You know, you asked me when I was a cub reporter, I was covering high schools. Okay. You you want to lay, you know, you want to take it easy on that 15 year old you know, who dropped a pass in the end zone that cost the, that cost the team. So I, you know, I, I don't think I asked particularly tough questions when I was covering high schools or even colleges. To be honest, you know, I covered Seton Hall basketball, Rutgers women's basketball when they were, you know, a top five team with Vivian Stringer. Uh, I, I don't know if I really asked a lot of hard-hitting, tough questions after losses, just because it's technically amateur sports. But once I started covering the NFL, uh, you know, this is a you know a, what a thirteen billion dollar industry. It's a cutthroat business. Guys backstab other guys, uh, you know, for power and leverage, and you know, it's a big boy industry. These guys make multi, uh, you know, they're, they're multimillionaires. Uh, not all of them, but you know, some of them are. So I, I don't see a, a reason to use euphemisms or tread lightly uh uh you know you want to be you know sympathetic uh to, you know if things are happening in someone's personal life and and you know this and and you don't want to you know hammer them and embarrass them publicly I, I totally get that and that's why i have great relationships with uh so many people that i've covered over the last you know 15 years but in terms of after games and losses and talking to coaches uh you know it's a big boy business you got to wear your big boy pants right these these guys are macho guys and they're tough guys uh, there's no reason to tiptoe around it. If they screwed up, you have to ask them, you know, what what happened? Why why did things not go right? And uh, I don't think you'd be doing your job properly if you uh, you know danced around that. Yeah, I I think by the way, I did not call you a professional irritant. I might have <laughs> called you a professional irritant, but I did say I said that you call out the Jets when they do things that aren't about winning. And I I'm and in all honesty, like I think I said something that you would take as a compliment um, because we all know a lot of reporters who don't want to ask those questions. So I meant it as a, a, in the nicest way possible. Are you, no, so, I liked it. I, yeah. I got a good laugh out of it. Yeah, to yeah. me, it's about do, do they respect the job that I'm doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not my job to be best friends with everyone. Now, I am very friendly with a lot of people, but that's that's not the end game. That's not the goal for me. Uh, you know, some of the people that I respect the most, I, I'm not I'm not friends with. I, you know, I'm friendly and professional towards, but... You know, they have a job to do. I respect their time and their responsibilities, and I just hope that they would respond respond in kind. When you was there ever like, did you have a hero sports writer, a guy that you wanted to be when you were coming up? 
Yeah, there were a couple guys, you know, growing up in Philadelphia. I always used to read uh, uh, Jason Stark, yep. uh, rumblings and grumblings in the in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, it just so happens that Jason Stark and I live about 15 minutes apart now, but that's a coincidence, I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, Bill Lyon, who actually recently just passed yeah. away, was another guy who I read uh, just because, you know, he was really a poet. Uh, I admire his writing style and his elegance as a writer. So it was... Uh, you know, it was very disappointing to say the least. I'm, I'm not alone in that in terms of younger writers who, in this area, who grew up and respected Bill Lyon so much. So, uh, you know, that was a big loss, but he was such a tremendous talent with a beautiful gift. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about Bill Lyon. We had Mike Sielski on, and he was talking about Bill Lyon. Just, you know, I remember reading him, but I guess he was a, just as great a person uh, as he was a columnist. Uh, yeah, I well, the whole thing, you know, it's different. When I was growing up, the Philadelphia Inquirer sports page was like, that was it. That was my Bible. And there's just so many, it's such a different media universe nowadays. Um, and I know, you know, you're holding it down with print and I, I read you, you know, I read you online now. So it's, it's different. When we were kids, I mean, that was, did you do the daily news too? Or were you just an inquire guy? No, it's actually funny. Cause we got the Sunday inquire, uh, you know, my parents always went to the grocery store and yep. got Sunday inquire. And when I was really young, my first memories actually are getting the Philadelphia bulletin. Me too. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I did not get the Daily News for whatever reason. You know, I didn't have many money, so I was beholden to what my dad got. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a ritual. We would get the we would get the paper, and then my dad would have to you – know, he'd get first dibs on the sports section, so I'd have to wait and pretend to, you know, read the news section and enjoy it when I'm not sure I actually did. And then when he was done with the sports section, I, I got my crack at it. So, But that Sunday Inquirer sports section in the, in the 80s was – uh, you know, I'm, I'm biased, obviously, being from Philadelphia, but that to me was the best sports section. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in my lifetime, without a doubt. Uh, did you? Were you around for the great sports debate on Prism? I was. I was. Mike Missinelli, I think Angelo Cataldi, yep. maybe Al Morganti was on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the. You know, that was a, a sports reporters, like a localized version of sports reporters, and I'm trying to think. I guess they were running concurrent. You know, sports reporters on yep. ESPN, the national. Yeah, so I used to watch both, you know, sports reporters. Uh, it was a big part of my, my weekend mornings. And, and yeah, and the great sports debate in Prism. Oh, God, I love, I love what I think. I mean, we're going to get in, inside Philadelphia yeah. here, but just <laughs> watching Sixers games on Prism with, uh, with Mark Zuboff and uh, Barkley and, and those teams. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, that's a time that's long, long gone, but it's not something that I don't, uh, you know, think about from time to time. Uh, I'm not to brag here, but I spoke at my local synagogue a lot, and Mark Zumoff was the featured speaker. Me and him one time, the longtime voice <laughs> of the six. <laughs> For me, I was like, "Whoa, Zumoff's going to be there. That's huge." Yeah. By the way, we, we're probably going to have to edit out all this Philly talk because yeah, I imagine. I'm actually looking at a framed poster of the Philadelphia Bulletin 1980 World Series. Mm. Uh, Phillies, uh, it's like all sketches of uh, the starters and the back, and then pictures of the backups in black and white. Yeah, and that was an afternoon paper, right? So they got the yeah. Dodgers, when, whenever the Phillies were out of the West Coast, I was so mad because they didn't have the box score. Nowadays, it's like, um, I know the second anything is over, an alert comes to my phone. It's so different. I know. I actually like miss those days. Like, yeah. I, I, I actually have a funny story. So I used to go to my neighbors. When we moved to the suburbs when I was in middle school, uh, I would like wake up in the morning before I went to the bus stop to go to school and get the paper from my neighbor, go back inside, have like have breakfast, look at the box score, and then return it and put it back on his front yard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I that. so much, that's so much better than, like, I yeah. mean, I know it's not technically better than getting the live updates, 
like on your phone or your computer. But I kind of miss that. Like I'm old school, so I to me like that kind of stuff. Like I tell my wife when I retire, I'm not having I'm like getting rid of my phone, or maybe I'll get a phone with no internet, yeah, just for emergencies. But I'm not, you know, I'm gonna get rid of social media. I'm not gonna be on anything. I'm gonna be completely like off the grid because that's to me that's like the best. We go on vacation mm. out to, out of the country. She takes her phone for emergencies, and I leave my phone at home. That is so freeing. I think I remember when you. I think I remember on Twitter where you disappeared for a little while. I was a little worried about you. But, uh, yeah, we are sounding really old school now. But I really appreciate your time. By the way, I'm gonna, my takeaway is going to be the Mount Rushmore of Drek. That's a good <laughs> – and you're so right. You nailed the exact four teams that belong on there. Um, but I'm glad the Jets aren't on there. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate this. We're going to talk Sixers come springtime because it's, Absolutely. it's all going down. I, I was a little disappointed off the air that your focus is not – not on Broad Street right now. I understand you have a full time job, but yeah, I know. it's weird because I did really want to go. Like we, like I said, we looked for the Friday and Saturday night yeah. tickets, and it's just it's like, dude, I, I can't, I'm not going to spend three hundred bucks a ticket for a regular season game. Well, we're in the media. Can we figure this out? We got to get some sort of sort I mean, of break. I, I'm sure I can get in the building, but my wife can. So I know, I know, but uh, Dan Patrick could get in the building. He could get us both in the building. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'll, I'll save that for the playoffs. By the way, if you just want to know, like every time a basketball team's like, oh, Dan Patrick's coming, great. So like get five tickets. Great, great, great. Then at the last minute, ah, Dan can't make it. Sorry, um, those tickets evaporated mysteriously. So that's not going to help us. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Right. Thank you. Man, that was insightful because, you know, a couple things. Manish is very close to the team. He does not see this as any possible miracle run. And he brought up a good point about tiebreakers. Generally, I kind of felt a little worse about the Jets after talking to Manish. I do too. I feel like they're going to be stuck with Gase for another year. Maybe Gase is a good coach, but I don't think he's a great head coach. Like Manish said, I think he's a great offensive coach. So I don't know. Are you feeling Are you feeling any chance? The Zero only- to 100, what, they're making the playoffs. Now, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs at this point. The only good thing that I came away with from that uh, conversation was that he said the Jets are going to be in the top six. Which, That's not true. Which at this point, I'm thinking, you know, they're going to you know, rattle off a couple more games and they're going to end up with a 15th pick or something. And we're going to end up with... Uh, yeah, they're not going to be top six in the draft. But they don't need to be. They have their quarterback. So what's the, what's the is there a huge difference between the sixth pick and the 10th pick? I, I don't think so. Yeah, think that could mean be... like Jerry Judy or... Uh, you know, some lineman from uh, Washington State. Yeah, well, who the E, by the way, you never draft yeah. lineman out of Washington State because they're running Mike Leach offense. And then the Eagles went ahead and drafted one mm-hmm. who has been hot and cold. Uh, but anyway, so the Jets look like they're in trouble now. Now I'm down on the Jets. I was so high on the Jets before I was talking to him, but he's right. It's been the Redskins, the Giants, and the Raiders. Uh, they, basically, they could win their next two games. Now, Here's the thing. At the Ravens, I, I know that sounds like a complete miracle, but it's possible, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe at that point, the Ravens, you know. Yeah. Maybe they don't need it. Yeah. Maybe CJ Mosley is just so fired up to face his former team. You never know. So I'm uh, I'm basically not giving up on this, Jess, despite Manish thing. Uh, anyway, so are you just going to walk around? Are you going to start wearing JETS gear around the oh, studio? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to w- come in with a sweatshirt tomorrow and a hat. Yeah, that that should go over well. Yeah, I'm gonna and I'm gonna flaunt it in, in front of everybody's face too. Oh, and I'm gonna God. make a prediction that they beat the uh, Ravens in a couple weeks. What if they lose to one of these next two games against Cupcakes? Then will you still make that prediction? No. Oh boy. 
All right. Well, I hope everybody listening has a wonderful holiday. I'm very curious to see how all the takes in this uh, this podcast <laughs> turn out in a few weeks. But if you subscribe, you will know. So I appreciate your time. This is Against the Grain. Talk to you soon.